will you please open your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 2? And I will warn you, this is sad, it really is, to, to begin with. Because here we're, we're turning to this lament of Jeremiah as he sees the, the state that Jerusalem has got to. And perhaps in your mind you're able to in some way picture Jeremiah stood in the ashes of a city that's been destroyed by the Babylonian armies. The house of God burned, ruined. What God had promised would happen, had happened. And Jeremiah, more than anybody else in that city, knew that the Babylonian invasion was the hand of God at work. And so we read in Lamentations 2 and verse 5. The Lord was as an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed his strongholds. He has increased in the daughter of Zion, uh, daughter of Judah, sorry, mourning and lamentation. He hath violently taken away his tabernacle as if it were of a garden. He has destroyed his places of the assembly. The Lord hath caused the solemn feasts and Sabbath to be forgotten in Zion and to despise in the indignation of his anger the king and the priest. The Lord hath cast off his altar. He hath abhorred his sanctuary, hath given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of a solemn feast. The Lord hath purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He hath stretched out a line, he hath not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore he made the rampart and the wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He hath destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The law is no more. Her prophets also find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit upon the ground and keep silence. They have cast up dust upon their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem hang down their heads to the ground. Mine eyes do fail with tears. My bowels are troubled. My liver is poured upon the earth for the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because the children and the suffering swoon in the streets of the city. So there was Jeremiah lamenting. The fact that what's gone wrong here. So many things we can list from that passage of what's happened. Jeremiah understandably has tears running down his face, crying until tears won't come any longer. It's making him physically ill seeing this terrible situation. And yet, brothers and sisters, yet, thankfully, God's plan with Israel was such that he would not cast them off altogether. We know, yes, the land lay like that for some 70 years, as, as Jeremiah had prophesied it would do. But a time of restoration was coming when the problems that Jeremiah could see would be put to right. And although it's not the ultimate, we, we sang in our opening hymn there, of the ultimate restoration of, of Zion. We do have in this picture that we are going to study together, 
a glimpse of the restoration. And certainly a time does come when God does restore, where the altar was cast off, we're going to see tonight. The altar is put back on its base. Where the temple was destroyed, we will see how it was rebuilt. The walls were destroyed, we won't see in our studies this week. But of course you know they were built again by Nehemiah. The feasts were forgotten. We'll see how they become kept again. The Sabbaths were forgotten. They'll be reinstated. The gates that were broken down, they'll be set up. The law that was no more. Well, in Ezra, we see a ready scribe coming along. There were no more prophetic visions. Well, we see in Haggai and Zechariah, the, the prophets coming again and speaking the word of God. The young women ashamed. Well, I think it's interesting to think that in Esther, we see surely the exhortation of uh, uh, a sister there, great sister. As we said, I don't know if I said to you yesterday, but I certainly told the teens this morning that we believe Esther fits into the, to the historical time period between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. That's where Ezra, uh, Esther fits in. Because Ezra uh, and Nehemiah were one book in the Hebrews, just the Ezra-Nehemiah book, as it were. So God had promised they would be in captivity for 70 years. But he promised too that they would return. There would be a restoration. And what's more, he's told them the name of the individual who would allow them to return. This is amazing, brothers and sisters, that some 150 years before Cyrus existed, Isaiah had prophesied. Now think about the history of Israel here. Isaiah, you're going back, aren't you, to the time of Hezekiah when the Assyrians were coming to take Israel into captivity. And now here we are in the time of, of Jeremiah and that we're thinking about when the Babylonians came and here we are now 70 years on from that even and we're thinking about when the exiles return. That is when this man Cyrus comes on the scene and Isaiah way back then was saying Cyrus is going to be the one who's going to say to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Isaiah had prophesied that. So let's turn to Ezra chapter 1 now. And if you do have a marker, it's definitely worth putting a marker in to this section. Because we will sort of come away from here a few times, but each time come back to Ezra. So we read in chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And I think it's thrilling, really, to be able to see the hand of God so clearly at work here. In these two verses, I think we can see the words of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. Well, of course, Jeremiah is easy because he is mentioned by name. Uh, you see it there in verse 1, and I've kind of put Jeremiah 29 and verse 10. There might be another uh, link to Jeremiah there as well, to chapter 51 and verse 11, which I'll give you on the screen shortly. We, we touched on Isaiah. Remember, we talked about Isaiah speaking about Cyrus in Isaiah 44 and 45. Uh, and it's in Isaiah 45 that in verse 13 that the prophet goes on to say about Cyrus, 
I have raised him up in righteousness. And now that is the word for stirred there in Ezra 1 and verse 1. Um, so the Lord stirred up, raised up the, the spirit of uh, Cyrus. So he's been stirred up by God, Isaiah 45 and verse 13. Now, the next one, we want to somehow get to Daniel, because what Cyrus says here is remarkable in verse 2. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And we want to particularly pick up on this, because this is incredible, really. We want to think of this Gentile king speaking of, of Yahweh, but this phrase, the God of heaven, it is not a phrase that is used regularly in Scripture. That There are all the occurrences there on the screen, um, and we are going to, to turn to some of those together. But you can sort of see, can't you, that it's a regular phrase through Ezra, through Nehemiah, so that kind of uh, book together. Psalm 136, I think we'll be able to kind of touch on that uh, in the study later to see why that might come in. Certainly regularly through Daniel chapter 2, um, and, of course, 2 Chronicles 36, you, I'm sure you realize that the last two verses of 2 Chronicles 36 are just a repeat, or, or Ezra, you know, chapter 1 is a repeat of the end of 2 Chronicles 36. But I would like us to turn to Genesis 24 together. So let's leave our markers and head to Genesis chapter 24. To see its first use in the scriptures. And here we find Abraham is sending his servant back to Abraham's people to find a wife for Isaac. So he says to his servant, I'm going to make you swear. So sorry, this is Genesis 24, verse 3. By the Lord, the God of heaven. There's the God of the earth there as well. And then he's, he's making him swear because he wants him to make sure that he gets a son not from this land, but from the land of his fathers, as in actually you know, going back to uh, Haran. So let's pick it up in verse 6. Abraham said unto him, Beware thou that thou bring not my son thither again. Yahweh, God of heaven, there's our phrase, God of heaven, which took me from my father's house, from the land of my kindred, where's that? Ur uh, of the Chaldees, Babylon, which spake unto me and swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. So amazing to see that, that Abraham is using that specific phrase, recalling the fact that God had called him from Babylon and promised him this land. He didn't want his son Isaac marrying a Canaanite. But we're not surprised to see the phrase, the God of heaven too, used in Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, predominantly. So the faithful in those days knew that God was at work to bring his people to the land that God had promised to Abraham. That the God of heaven who reigns over all the earth, he's in heaven, his dwelling place, that's true. But actually, he's the one who has a purpose that begins in this land. Mount Zion is his chosen place. His work in the kingdoms of men is ultimately about bringing about his purpose in Israel. 
Will he come to Daniel now? It's Daniel chapter 2 that repeatedly uses the phrase, the God of heaven. And of course, every one of us will know that that's the most famous of chapters, the most famous of prophecies about God working in the kingdoms of men to bring about his purpose. And I'd like us to turn now to Daniel 5, where we can see the hand of God at work bringing about the, the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2, that the God of heaven is going to be at work now, bringing about the end of the head of gold, the Babylonian empire, and bringing in the, the Medes and the Persians, the, the chest and arms of silver. And here in Daniel chapter 5, Daniel, of course, was there that night when Belshazzar, the wicked king, was drinking and celebrating in the most horrific of manners, blasphemous of manners. Read in Daniel 5. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood and of stone in the same hour. Note that, in the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. But then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. And so we see Belshazzar suddenly frightened, recognizing all the awfulness perhaps of what he's done. Daniel, of course, isn't joining in with his drunken behavior. But you remember that he is sent for and he gives a damning message to Belshazzar. Will you pick up at verse 25? This is the writing that was written. Meany, meany, tikal ufarsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Meany, God have numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tikal, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Peres, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. Well, it's Herodotus that records for us what happened that night. Cyrus turned the Euphrates by a canal into the basin, which was then a marsh, on which the river sank to such an extent the natural bed of the stream became fordable. Hereupon, the Persians who had been left for the purpose at Babylon by the riverside entered the stream, which had now sunk so as to reach about midway up a man's thigh, and thus got into the town. As it was, the Persians came upon them by surprise and so took the city. Owing to the vast size of the place, the inhabitants of the central parts, as the residents of Babylon declare, long after the outward portions of the city were taken, knew nothing of what a chance, but as they engaged in a festival, 
continued dancing and reveling until they learned about the capture. And so Cyrus was there, approaching Babylon. But the Babylonians were too arrogant to believe that anyone could get into their city. We can imagine for those Jews, though, who were living in Babylon, it must have been spine-tingling to hear that a man leading an army towards Babylon was named Cyrus. Their hearts and their minds must have been racing. Can you imagine Daniel's excitement that night? As a young man, he'd been taken to Babylon, made a eunuch, put through trauma, but faithfully he'd served the God of heaven. He knew his Bible. The prophecy had said, Cyrus, Cyrus is the one. Cyrus was outside the walls. And notice what the next verse in Isaiah says. I told the young people this this morning. I could see them. They got their pencils out straight away. You've got to do the same. This is thrilling. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holding, to subdue nations before him. I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates. It's amazing, isn't it? There in Daniel 5, in our margin, surely against verse 6, the joints, of his, the joints of his loins were loose. We've got Isaiah 45, verse 1. The prophecies coming true. It's exactly what happened. He was quaking. With that in his mind, Daniel must have had such confidence giving that speech to Belshazzar. He could see the scriptures being fulfilled in front of his eyes. We believe that it was Belshazzar's arrogance of using those vessels that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem that would have angered God. This is, I think, a helpful cross-reference. Isaiah 51 and verse 11. Remember I mentioned to you in Ezra 1 that that word stirred up. This is the word here. Make bright the arrows, gather the shields, the Lord hath raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes for his devices against Babylon to destroy it. Why? Because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance of his temple. So let's make sure we've got this then. Here they are, Daniel 6, Daniel 5, sorry, verse 2 and verse 3. He's taken these vessels out of the temple. No, so Nebuchadnezzar obviously took those many years before but he's now taking those and abusing those vessels and using them for this orgy. And here, verse 5, I said to you, take note, in the same hour, that was the point. They stepped over a line, as it were, the vengeance of the temple. How dare you misuse the temple vessels? And as Daniel looked around in that, foul banqueting hall. He'd have seen the vessels and know God's vengeance would happen. Babylon's days were numbered. Well, it's immensely significant that we're told that Daniel continued into the first years of King Cyrus. As an old man, probably in his late 80s, his prayers had been answered. He could see the God of heaven working in the kingdoms of men. He knew through Isaiah God's plan with Cyrus 
And maybe this is my imagination, but surely we all think to this to a, a little bit, that Daniel, it wouldn't have taken him long to get speaking to Cyrus. Cyrus comes into this city. Daniel, one of the chief advisors. And surely he would have explained to Cyrus that the God of heaven is working through you. This is your role to defeat Babylon. And he'd have showed him the prophecies. As a young man in Babylon, God had revealed to him the answer to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. What's more, he would have surely explained that his role would be to give the decree to let the Jews go back to their land to rebuild the temple. So with that background, let's go back to Ezra chapter 1 again. And hopefully now we've seen from verse 2 the significance of that phrase that Cyrus used, the God of heaven. This is the most high God who rules in the kingdoms of men. He's the God who promised Abraham and his descendants this land. How appropriate it is that Cyrus refers to God as Yahweh, the God of heaven. He's giving the decree now to them to make the very journey that Abraham had taken so many years earlier. To leave Ur, to leave Babylon, and to travel to the land that God had chosen. What an amazing opening to this book and to see these prophecies coming true. And so we suggest that there's Jeremiah coming through, there's Isaiah coming through, there's Daniel coming through. And I want you to notice too that this proclamation that he makes in verse 2 was the voice, as it were, was put into writing. Now, the word writing, so the end of verse 1, is a sort of key word running through Ezra. But we think it's really interesting to sort of pick this out now that the voice was put into writing. This voice has been preserved. Now, I know I'm working you hard, but this is good to keep us awake, isn't it? Come to Isaiah 45 again. Now, we've already noted that Isaiah 45 is about Cyrus. It says it in the first verse. We've noted from verse 13 the word raised. I have raised him up. And we saw that the word stirred up in Ezra 1 and verse 1. Now, I want you to think about this. Audience participation here. What in the British Museum, big clue, do we have from Cyrus? The Cyrus Cylinder. What is the Cyrus cylinder? What's it made from? Stone? Clay? I'm going to go with clay. I prefer the answer clay. Okay? You'll see why in a moment. Okay? So, can you picture the Cyrus cylinder? I'm going to put a picture of it on, on the screen shortly. Okay? So, if you can't, don't worry. But the Cyrus cylinder, made from clay, Cyrus writes down the proclamation. It was put into writing. Cyrus cylinder, made from clay. That in mind, look at this. Isaiah 45, verse 9. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Do you know what the word maker 
is sometimes translated as. Just come on, someone shout that louder. Potter. Okay. Woe unto him that striveth with his potter. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherd of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou, or thy work? He hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou, or to the mother, what hast thou brought forth? Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. Command ye me. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. I have raised him up, Cyrus, in righteousness. I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, to me, that is just incredible to think about the fact that the Cyrus cylinder, okay, this famous cylinder this there that the potter has made to put into writing Cyrus's thoughts. And here in Isaiah 45, God is saying, I'm the potter. I am the one who's in control. I am the one who's making these events happen. How thrilling is that? And when you think about the writing that is being referred to on the Cyrus cylinder, I think this is amazing. Think about this. The writing says they could leave Babylon. It was their free choice. They could set off on a journey. They could go on this journey to build the temple in Jerusalem. And they were going to be led by Jeshua and Zerubbabel. Now, if it's not sort of already ring some bells you to think that really is quite significant. Will you come to Isaiah 52? Now, of course, this is about these people leaving Babylon. We read in Isaiah 52 and verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart ye, depart ye, go you out from thence, touch no unclean thing, go you out of the midst of her, be clean, ye that bear the vessels of the Lord. For he shall go up, for ye shall not go out in haste, nor go by flight. The Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel shall be your reward. So that's an amazing passage, isn't it? That's speaking about them being able to go in the first instance to leave, and they will be able to go back to Jerusalem to, to rebuild the waste places of Jerusalem. Those who carry the vessels, you think about Nehemiah, of course, but actually we're going to see how that they carry the vessels, they bring the vessels back to the temple. But here's the significance of this. Verse 7, you will know is cited in Romans 10 in relation to the gospel. That's actually what this is about. That's what this prophecy really is all about. It's the gospel message that we can are able to leave, that we're able to be sort of released 
from the problem of captivity, the thing that holds us into captivity is sin. We're able to be released from sin and death. We, in the gospel, are able to then start a journey, aren't we? Start a building project in the ecclesia, uh, and we're being led, of course, by Jeshua, uh, by the people that Je Jeshua and Zerubbabel represent in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, coming back to Ezra chapter 1, I, I hope you sort of get the sense of just how exciting this is. This part of scripture that we're studying can teach us lessons about our calling. It's the great parable of leaving Egypt, or of leaving Babylon. So in Ezra 1 now, in verse 3, you, this is part of the proclamation. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem. That's our phrase, isn't it? Go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts, besides the freewill offering for the house of God that is at Jerusalem. And, and I put as a cross-reference in my margin against uh, verse 4 there, Exodus 12 and verse 35, because that, that's what it reminds us of, doesn't it? It's like when the Israelites left Egypt and the Egyptians like, poured on them and said, you know, take this, take this, take this, gave them all these things to be able to support them in their journey. And so too, here, the part of the proclamation is make sure they're given a help. Give them silver, gold, good, good, the whole lot. Help them as they go on this journey and they're heading off to Jerusalem. Now look how significant this is then. We read in verse 7. Also, Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods. Even those, those vessels did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and numbered them unto Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Sheshbazar is Zerubbabel. Okay, Zerubbabel, one of the leaders. So he numbers them to Sheshbazar, to Zerubbabel, as he's going to now be one of the leaders, taking them back to the land. Now let's consider the vessels. They were taken to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar took them away. They were abused by Belshazzar. And as a result, God said to him, Meanie, meanie, tikal ufasa. And we thought about the fact that that means numbered, numbered. Your days are numbered. You've been found wanting, weighed and found wanting. Your kingdom is going to be divided. Your kingdom has had its time. It's been weighed, found wanting. It will be divided. It will be split up. And here in Ezra, we see what happens with the vessels themselves. We find this really interesting that the vessels themselves were numbered. It says in verse 9, this is the number of them. The vessels were numbered. Okay, we've got that. We can also, if you just flick over briefly to Ezra chapter 8,
Note in verse 24 and 25 that the vessels were weighed. The vessels have been numbered. The vessels have been weighed. But I think it's interesting. We see in verse 34 that by number and by weight of everyone, and all the weight was written at that time. But what you will find if you search through is that the vessels were not divided. They were numbered. They were weighed. But they were kept. They were not divided. But of course, the vessels in that temple were parables. Parables of what we should be. We should be God's vessels. Now, there in 2 Timothy 2, I put it on the screen for us. If a man therefore purge himself, he shall be a vessel unto honour. Now, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Uh, I've given you some other cross-reference there from, to compare. From Romans 9, from 1 Peter 3. We are the vessels. If you come back to Ezra chapter 1 and Ezra chapter 2, you'll see that just as the vessels had been numbered, so were the people. Because the vessels were a parable of the people. Ezra 2 in verse 1. So at the end of verse uh, uh, Ezra chapter 1, you see it's speaking of the vessels, or the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. They've been numbered. All these did Sheshbazar bring up with him out of the captivity. So the rebel was going to bring them up. They've been given to him. They're in his responsibility. He's going to bring them up. But then in chapter 2, now these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity, of those which had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried away into Babylon, and now come again to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone into his city, which came with Zerubbabel. And keep going through, so you've got Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bishlam, Mizpah, Bigvai, Rehum, Baana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, they're numbered. Do you see how the, the connection between the vessels that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar went to Babylon, now coming back, is connecting us to the people. It's the people that God is really interested in. It's the people that make up his temple that he really wants. Well, we might imagine that every Jew that was living in Babylon would have been keen to return. It's simply not the case. For some of them, it seems Babylon had got too comfy. People had settled. They'd got jobs, had nice houses. It was a long journey back. We suggest it was mainly the poor who made the, the answer to the call. And the evidence for that isn't enormous, but if you turn to the end of Ezra chapter 2, in verse 64, it says, The whole congregation together was 42,303 score, besides their servants and their maids, of whom they were, of whom there were, sorry, 7,337, and there were among them 200 singing men and singing women. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their asses 6,720. 
And some of the chief of the uh, fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to be set in its place. Well, the calculation as to why we're suggesting it's mainly the poor that would go back is that of the 42,360 that went back, it looks like a sixth had servants, which would suggest then that 85% didn't have servants. Just under 20% had an animal. So it would suggest that most of the people were poor and yet willing to make that journey. Of course, it was the Lord Jesus who said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And that's not to say that some rich folk didn't respond. So again, just the verse 68 that we read together talks about the fact that some of the chief of the fathers, they offered freely and they gave after their ability unto the treasure of the work three score and 1,000 drams of gold, 5,000 pounds of silver and 100 priests garments. So it's not to say that there weren't richer folk who didn't respond and uh, yeah, there's some sort of pretty big numbers that are suggested there. But this journey was certainly a long and arduous journey. We know when Ezra, so this is not Ezra's time, Ezra's time isn't for many, many years yet till he comes back. But we know when Ezra did come back, it took some four months. We know that from Ezra chapter 7 and verse 9. And on top of that, it's very clear that there were dangers of enemies and such as lying wait people who would ambush them on their way, especially if they picked up they were going with treasures uh, as they were. But under the hand of God, they arrived in the land. And it seems initially that people went to their hometowns, I would guess where their ancestors had previously lived. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua seemed to have instructed them to make sure they came back to Jerusalem in the seventh month. So just pick up the final verse of Ezra 2. The priests, the Levites, some of the people and the singers, the porters, the Nephilims dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. So when they get there, they seem to go into their cities. But chapter three, verse one, when the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josedach and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Zerubbabel is the leader. And he also has the Babylonian name, Shesh Bazar, which means worshipper of fire. My wife said, do not say this, John, but I can't help myself. It's just a bit of a bizarre name, isn't it? You know? Okay, I'll, I'll remember next time not to bother. He, he's the royal descendant. He, he has a claim to the throne of David. And so Zerubbabel, his name means sown in Babylon. We think of uh, the Lord Jesus being described in Isaiah as a root out of a dry ground. And in a sense, that it's that same idea. This one has been sown in Babylon. Babylon was a spiritual wilderness, yet God raised up Zerubbabel for this task. Working alongside him is Jeshua, the priest. And Jeshua is the same as Joshua, you know, Jesus, Yah saves. So these men combine uh, to, to represent the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as our priest and our king. Uh, they're going to lead the people out of Babylon, out of the world. 
So it's exciting too to see the description of the people who are with them. You just see then at the end of verse 1 of chapter 3, uh, trying to put some emphasis here, that they are all together as one man in Jerusalem. Uh, and that, that's just such a lovely thing to see, isn't it? Because in a sense, we're seeing here a stunning picture of the Lord Jesus and the saints with a mission to build a temple, to set up the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And the first thing that they do is to build the altar, to get the altar back on its base. Let's have a look at this. So chapter 3 and verse 3. They set the altar upon its base. Now remember from Lamentations, that come off, the altar wasn't there. The first thing they do, they get the altar upon its bases. For fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. Well, surely the lesson that comes out of verse 3 is that the basis of our salvation does not change. Here they are, many, many years later in history, and the altar is put on the same basis. And that's such an important lesson, I think, for us to remember. The base of our salvation has not changed. As Christadelphians, we have a foundation statement in our statement of faith. That the book, currently known as the Bible, consisting of the scriptures of Moses, the prophets, the apostles, is the only source of knowledge concerning God and his purposes at present, extant, or available in the earth. And that the same were wholly given by inspiration of God in the writers, and are consequently without error in all parts of them, except such as may be due to errors of transcription or translation. That foundation, brothers and sisters, must never change. If the scriptures, which are the basis of our faith, are treated lightly, and we start picking and choosing the bits that we like and rejecting the bits that we don't like, we're in serious trouble. This is the only thing that utterly separates us from the world and from every other system of worship. We genuinely believe this. We genuinely hold on to this as the word of God. Just as they had left Babylon behind, so too we must remember that what separates us from the world, which includes all the apostate worship that goes on around us, is our desire to build on the foundation of God's word. And I also just think it's interesting to see this in verse 3, that they get this done first. For fear was upon them because of the people of those countries that were around them. The leaders knew that the best way to deal with the problem of the surrounding people was to get it right with God. Now to me that is such an important lesson again that we must hold on to. If we are fearful of the reaction of the world, And I do not doubt that all of us at times will have had that. It might be through a work situation or or something or talking to neighbors and have a a sense of thinking, oh, heck, I want to get it right by you. But the lesson here is that even when there is fear concerning the countries around, the key is get it right with God. They got the altar on its basis because they were nervous about the people around them. 
if we're fearful of the reaction of the world, the best thing we can do is to get it right with God. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus? Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so their attitude was right. They were able then to sacrifice to God. And so we see in the end of verse 3, how that they were offering then burnt offerings. The burnt offering, of course, spoke of total dedication. Here these people were dedicating their lives, demonstrating in that offering a desire to give their all to God. So let's conclude with some lessons that we can perhaps learn. Recognize the power of God's word in so many ways, but most certainly see this, that what he promises will happen does happen, and it will happen. Trust that God knows the vessels which are his, and he is working to bring them to his land. Hold on to the word, the foundation of our faith. The word is wholly inspired. It's the basis of our lives. Get things right with God. Do not be changed or compromised through fear of the world. Get it right with God.